You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem, bismillahir rahmanir rahim. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar Ahmed and Mubara Zamini, and we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to, uh, to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And, of course, you can hit us up on our socials on Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, If you are familiar with The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station, you'll know that we usually... um, uh, start our day with the news um, and then we get into our main topics for the day. Um, some of the days do uh, have two segments and uh, on some days we have three. On Tuesday we usually have three segments um, and the three segments for you today are new blood test can detect uh, uh, can detect toxic protein years before Alzheimer's symptoms emerge according to what new studies have shown in the second hour we're going to be speaking about how study discovers triple immunotherapy com- combination as possible treatment for pancreatic cancer and last but not least we're going to be speaking about how a new study on the circadian uh, clock um, of the fruit fly uh, and what that suggests as well uh, but before we get into all of that, um, Mubaraz, how are you doing today? Um, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm good, but it was just a very cold start to the morning, so um, that's kind of uh, um, frosted us a bit on the way into the office. Yeah, no, 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 definitely. Studio. Yeah, it took, it took an extra couple of minutes to, to warm up the car and uh, get the, the, the windshields ready for, for you to start start driving as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, minus four, I believe it was yes, uh, this yes. morning. Oh, minus five is minus five now. right now. Well, yeah. It was minus four at that time, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean it's 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 crazy. It's uh, it's uh, it's it's been awfully cold, um, uh, but uh, but on, on on a similar light, um, what's what's the weather saying for not just for today, but for for the rest of the week as well? Well, uh, just for today, it will be um, a cold start for for everyone, um, <coughs> and there will be scattered showers of sleet and snow, uh, which will continue for for western and northern areas today. It will be drier for central and eastern England with plenty of sunshine. Tonight it will be another cold frosty night for for many of us. Uh, Northern Scotland will see strong winds with snow showers. Uh, uh, Ireland, Wales and western England will see heavy sleet and snow showers at times. Tomorrow, Wednesday, will be a cold and breezy day. There will be further wintry showers for northern and western areas and northeast England may see spells of snow for a time, largely dry and fine elsewhere. And then the outlook for Thursday to Saturday, um, as high pressure builds from, from, from the west through Thursday, it will be drier and calmer day. It will remain chilly, but there will be plenty of sunny spells for most. After a cold night, cloud and rain are likely to move into the southwest into Friday. Eastern areas will remain dry through the day, Saturday will be a mild and windy day. There will be showers in the northwest. So we're looking at um, a few chilly days coming up with um, hopefully uh, showers coming towards the end of the week and that will then change this 
uh, cold forecast that we've got going yeah. on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, uh, for the last couple of weeks, um, you might have put your your, your gloves and uh, scarves back into uh, the, the the corners of your of your wardrobes and stuff. But I think maybe it's time to bring them out oh, for definitely. at least another week or so. Yeah, just for this week, now, yeah. we're gonna need them. Yeah. If you if you see me with my woolly hat, <laughs> I couldn't find my gloves anywhere. But <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's awfully cold going in the minuses. So so yeah. Um, getting into the headlines, the newspaper headlines, Monster of the Met and uh, Slapdown for Sturgeon. Um, so Met officer admits to brutal campaign of rape and terror um, is how The Guardian sums up the scandal surrounding a metropolitan police officer who has admitted dozens of rape and sexual offences against 12 women. David Carrick was found to have sent uh, some of his victims selfies in his uniform while at work, among other shocking revelations, quote-unquote. The paper writes... Um, it also looks at Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's decision to block Scotland's gender recognition law. The Telegraph focuses on the Met's ad- uh, admission that it failed the public by allowing Carrick to be in its ranks. In a statement, the Forces Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, said Carrick abused women in the most dis- dis- distinct- disgusting way and apologised. Elsewhere, the paper looks at Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's um, reaction to her gender bill being blocked by the UK. Cartoonist Matt Pritchett also looks ahead to teachers' strikes in England and Wales, set to take place next month and in March. The uh, a workplace nickname Carrick boasted, quote-unquote, about his victims' features uh, in the Metro report, with the paper describing his offences as sickening, quote-unquote, again as well. There are also some uh, details about the abuse suffered by his victims, including being locked in a cupboard uh, under Carrick's stairs and ordered not to eat. The Met's nine chances to stop Carrick is the focus of the Daily Mirror's front page, as well as some others. The headline refers to multiple allegations brought against Carrick while he served as a police officer and Met Commissioner Sir Mark's admission that the force had failed to apply the same sense of ruthlessness to guarding our own integrity that we may apply to confronting criminals. The Daily Mail uh, asks how many more monsters, quote-unquote, there are in uniform, pointing to the fact that uh, the, the Met is now investigating more than a 1,000 sexual and domestic abuse claims involving about 800 of its officers, as well as a reference to what the paper describes as Sunak's historic slapdown for Sturgeon's gender law, quote-unquote. There is also a nod to Italian actress uh, Gina Lollobrigida, uh, whose death was announced on Monday. The wider Met investigation into hundreds of his own officers sits in the centre of the of the eyes front page. Elsewhere and alongside images of Mr Sunak and a worrying and a worried looking Miss Sturgeon is the paper's report into a constitutional clash between the UK government and Scotland. The PM's landmark decision to block Holrock Holyrood's um, gender law sets up a potential historic court battle between two union nations, it writes. Using similar language as the Daily Mail, the Sun refers to Carrick as a monster of the Met and a beast, quote-unquote. On its website, uh, the paper also carries an exclusive interview with his ex-partner. On a lighter note, 
The front page includes a report about West Ham footballer De- Declan Rice being identified as Arsenal's top summer transfer uh, target. Pointing a finger at the Met, the Daily Express asks how the force missed a serial rapist in its ranks. The paper also reports that former PM uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's upcoming memo could make him as much as £6 million. It was widely reported on Monday that Mr Johnson had signed a deal with publisher HarperCollins to detail his time at 10 Downing Street. Focusing on other stories of the day, the Times looks at how the upcoming teachers' strikes in England and Wales will hit millions of pupils. It says, quote-unquote, teachers are turning their backs on children after 90% of union members voted to support industrial action, says Education Secretary Gillian, uh, Gillian Keegan, who has written a piece in the paper. There is also a report on how ill health among working age people is costing the economy the equivalent of 7% of the UK's GDP, according to an an analysis by the paper's own health commission. The lead story on the Financial Times front page is a continued rescue mission in the Ukrainian city of Dnipro after a Russian missile attack killed at least 40 people there on Sunday. An astonishing image shows a crane lifting pieces from the rubble of an apartment block destroyed in the blast. The arrest of Italy's most wanted mafia boss, Matteo Messina Denaro, dominates the Daily Star front page. Beside a headline um, that reads, uh, Bada Bing, referring to the popular phrase from the Godfather film series, is an image of the moment Denaro was taken into custody after 30 years on the run. Elsewhere, there is a photo of Carrick, who is described as a sick cop. So, as you can see, Almost all of uh, Tuesday's front pages um, feature the Met Police Officer David Carrick, who pled guilty to dozens of sexual offences. And the Daily Express asks, uh, quote-unquote, just how did police miss serial rapists in its ranks? The Sun described him as a monster of the Met, while the Daily Mirror says the Met had nine chances to stop him but failed to act. Just how many more monsters in uniform, asked the Daily Mail as well. The Daily Telegraph says the Met Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley will be under particular pressure because as the former Assistant Commissioner in charge of Specialist Operations, he was in effect Carrick's boss when some of his offending was taking place. In an editorial, the Mirror says official apologies and admissions of failures are simply not enough. The paper says those paid to uphold the law must uh, come up with a foolproof system to avoid recruiting villains and catch offenders in a uniform. Former <clears throat> Home Secretary Priti Patel tells The Express that uh, a change of law is needed to help clean up the Met. An editorial in The Sun describes a Scotland Yard as a, uh, as a broken force which betrays Londoners and shames Britain. Elsewhere, the Daily Telegraph describes the UK government decision to block Scotland's law on gender recognition and uh, as unprecedented, while The Guardian says Scottish ministers will mount a legal challenge. The I newspaper says the dispute will only deepen the rift between the two governments, but argues that this isn't likely to increase support for independence and, uh, Scotland, uh, in Scotland. In, a, in an editorial... <coughs> 
The Times says Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was right to block the Hollywood Hollywood law because it effectively extends the new Scottish right of gender self-identification to the rest of the UK by the back door. And uh, this is simply unacceptable. The Mail agrees, describing Mr Sunak's decision as an act of political courage that will be applauded on both sides of the border, quote-unquote. Uh, writing in the Times, Education Secretary Gillian Keegan accuses teachers of turning their backs on children after members of the National Education Union uh, voted to stage strikes in England and Wales. The paper says ministers are concerned <coughs> that the walkouts will disrupt uh, education and harm the economy. Uh, because parents will have to stay off work. But the union has uh, warned that teachers are leaving the profession in droves, while the government seems unbothered about the conditions they are allowing schools and colleagues to slide into. The Financial Times says billions of pounds in taxes being uh, collected because more than 2,000 HM revenue and customs um, staff have been transferred to work on Brexit and COVID schemes. The paper says Treasury Minister Victoria Atkins gave the details in a response to questions from the Liberal Democrats. Uh, She revealed that the amount of tax recovered through compliance has fallen by about £6 billion in recent years. And finally, some of the papers report that Boris Johnson is expected to earn about £6 million for his memoir. The Express says the book will be a sensational expose, although so far it has no title or publication date. The Mirror says the book should be found in the fiction section of bookshops. Um, So that uh, uh, is the uh, roundup (coughs) of the news uh, today. Um, uh, Was was there anything which particularly caught your eye or or even uh, from from within the headlines that we went through or maybe even from within the the, the newspapers as well? Well, I mean, Samari, it is a bit shocking um, with what what we've just read and what we've been through. Um, in regards to um, what's going on in the police force and, and uh, you know, we can't say much, we can't comment much, but what we can do is we can um, pray for such individuals and especially the ones that have been affected by this, that uh, may God be with them and, and help them in every step of their lives. Um, let's talk about China's population. Mm. Um, but, but but before you do so, just, just quickly as well, I mean, you said it's shocking. I... I I, I kind of disagree, which uh, which I say with a heavy heart as well, because, I mean, we, we, we've we seen so many cases now uh, similar to this, isn't it? People in uniform, hmm. people who are trusted um, uh, f- within the community, and uh, still the such uh, occurrences take place. I mean, it... It is shocking for it, for such a thing to happen. I agree 100%. But be, we're, unfortunately, and, and again, I say this with a very heavy heart, um, we're seeing so many cases like this time and time again now, yeah. which is it, it, it's, it's so worrying. I mean, you might think that, uh, um, uh, let's say for, for, for young uh, girls, teenage girls, for instance, mm. right? Um, this is uh, the, the, uh, he had cases with uh, with a lot of different women, um, but let's say someone's coming home from from school and they say that um, um, oh let let me let me take a shortcut let me go through the park um, it's daylight so it it should still be fine we've yeah. seen cases in which uh, people have uh, have done such offences during during daylight hours mm. uh, you might say that oh let me let me take a cab um, let, let's 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 be on the safe side right um, we've seen um, people. 
people, uh, uh, minicab drivers, also doing the same thing as well. Well, then you might say, okay, let's take a step further. Let's let's go to the the authorities. Let's go to the police and uh, and and get them to somehow get us home safely, or or at least accompany us, so so, mm. so we feel okay, right? Um, and and again, we're seeing so many cases with police officers as well. I mean, where does this stop? For for it's it's uh, it's such a worrying statistic that we see so many people within the uh, uh, who who are wearing the uniform uh, are doing such things, and it's uh, it's I mean it's terrible. To, it's to, terrible, to say the least. and 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 again, no matter how many um, cases you see coming forward from from the force or from any uh, public sector, right? Hmm. Um, it's not expected, and it's still shocking at the end of the day. Yeah, um, that how can someone who's been been given authority to to protect and serve right and and they um have gone and done such a um such a, a such a such a thing that you can never think of yeah um you're right there's there's we don't know what's going to happen there's no stopping it until um the authorities are investigating each and every um um a police officer or mm. anyone with any th- sort of authority needs to be you know really really thoroughly uh, have a proper background check yeah and uh, not just the background but even once they are on the force or once they are serving the public there needs to be um a continual uh, check up on them and an investigation on each individual to see how they are how their life is you know is someone going through uh, some sort of uh, depression or family issues at home, yeah. which he's going to, he or she is going to inevitably take out on other people around them. Um, so that's that's the job of the authorities. There's not much that we can actually do in yeah. that in that sense. Yeah, no, no, and I mean, the, uh, I agree one hundred percent. And the, the the problem is that when such occurrences take place, there's the, the newspapers. Uh, they always report that oh. Um, he had some kind of a, a funny background, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some kind of something w- which was fishy about uh, about the individual, and and people knew, yet nothing was done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and even in this case, we can see that there was, uh, I believe, one, a few of the newspapers said nine uh, instances in which they they could have done something beforehand as well. Um, yet they didn't, yeah. and uh, I think it was around sixty or so um, uh, abuses that he did uh, with, with uh, multiple uh, with around sixty women. Um, and I mean, it's it just goes to show that if if you, if such information was uh, they they if they had such information, then why was an action taken place earlier? Exactly. Um, and like some of the other newspapers articles mentioned as well, that simply apologizing. Um, will not be enough. Mm. Uh, that will not suffice, and there definitely needs to be more uh, done to crack down this issue, uh, in which the public can finally um, believe in the authority and uh, trust the those people in uniform as well to to not they take uh, take them for granted or or misuse their their authority or their power as well i mean in this case we know that the individual he was he was taking pictures and selfies of himself w- wearing the uniform and i think he got maybe a kick out of that as well um but but yeah i, I mean enough on that um you, you mentioned something about china oh yeah so um China's population falls for the first time since 1961. Oh, wow. China's population has, has fallen for the first time in, in 60 years, with the national birth rate hitting a, a, a record low 6.77 births per 1,000 people. 
the population in in 2022 1.4118 billion fell by 850,000 from 2021 china's birth rate has been uh, declining for years prompting a, a slew of policies of of policies to slow the trend but 7 years after scrapping the one child policy it has entered what one official described as an era of negative population growth the birth rate in 2022 was also down from 7.52 in 2021 according to china's national bureau of statistics which released the figures on tuesday in comparison in 2021 the united states recorded 11.06 births per 1000 people and the U- united kingdom uh, recorded 10.8 births per 1000 people the birth rate for the same year in india which is poised to overtake china as the world's most populous country was 16.42 per 1000 people deaths also outnumbered births for the first time last year uh, china logged its its highest death rate since 1976 which was 7.37 deaths per 1000 people up from 7.18 the previous year Uh, earlier government data had uh, heralded a, a demographic crisis which would in the long run shrink China's labor force and increase the burden on healthcare and other social security costs results from a once a decade census announced in 2021 showed China's population growing at its slowest pace in decades populations are also shrinking and aging in other east asian countries such as japan and south korea This trend is going to continue and perhaps worsen after COVID, says Yui Su, the principal economist at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, Mei Su is among experts who expect China's population to shrink further through 2021. The high youth employment rate and weaknesses in income expectations could delay marriage and childbirth plans further, dragging down the number of newborns, she added. So... that is um the the the, the birth rate mm. which is which has been declining uh, which has gone down in china uh, which is quite um you know we've always heard that china is the most populated and yeah. they have uh, too many people and that's why they brought in the laws such as the one child policy mm-hmm. and and other things but to see that they actually um whatever they're doing the 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 birth rates have gone down and at the same time uh, we can see how uh just as i compared with with the united states and and and, and the uk yeah. that we've got more births going on over here so it's a it's a different different atmosphere happening in china at the moment <laughs> uh, very different indeed <laughs> no that's uh, that's interesting i mean uh, oh, oh, just over 60 years i think you said isn't it yeah. um well wow, it's quite quite a quite a record there um speaking of records or statistics even pay rises at record pace but still below inflation so um if you might have noticed wages have grown at the fastest rate in over 20 years now but still uh they're failing to keep up with uh, the uh, rising prices so regular pay which uh, excludes bonuses rose at an annual pace of 6.4% between September and November which uh, according to uh, what the official figures have shown us it marks the fastest growth since 2000 uh, excluding the, the the pandemic when people got big rises after returning to work from furlough however 
When adjusted for uh, rising prices, wages fell by 2.6%. The cost of living is currently rising at its fastest rate in almost 40 years, largely due to the war in Ukraine. Um, so that was just a bit of uh, uh, um, breaking news as well that I thought I'd share with the listeners as well. Um I mean, it is uh, difficult uh, right now, isn't it? Especially um, yeah. paying for the the electricity bills and the water bills and all of that stuff. It's uh, it is getting a bit much, and it is getting uh, quite difficult as well. Um, one thing that the, the that the Ahmadiyya Muslim uh, Association has actually started for a couple of weeks now, maybe even months actually. Um, I think this was from back uh, in November, if I'm not mistaken. Um, within our mosques and within our centres, we've started having this sort of uh, I can't remember what they've called it, but it's like a heating room. Uh, warm so ba- rooms, yeah. a, a warm room, exactly. Yeah. Warm room, yeah. So basically, um, obviously, because it's been difficult for for everyone to keep up with uh, with the bills and and even have heating at the at their own homes, um, we've invited uh, the members that they can come come to the mosque, um, uh, sit down, uh, speak with their friends, meet each other, a, a, a friendly environment, uh, offer them tea, biscuits, cake, other such things, um, and they can just stay there for however much however long they want um and it's basically just uh, a room in essence for uh, with the heating on um and a few snacks going as well just to just to bring everyone together um and not only is this for the heating aspect of it um, and for people to keep warm, uh, but also for for uh, mentally, it's good for the members as well, in which they're getting together and um, uh, speaking with an, uh, with one another, seeing regular faces that they that they were familiar with before, mm. but uh, maybe because of COVID and other such things, they haven't uh, met them in a while. So so yes, yeah, it's, it's a refreshing um, thing to see. And um, you've mentioned this this. Um Warm rooms that the community has been has been uh, um, uh, hosting, and from our local mosque, um, you know there was there was a, a time where a lot of people actually came to the warm room to benefit <coughs> from um, the services provided, and there were so many happy faces. Yes, yeah, summer. Hmm. Um, so many uh, of the elderly people of the community who said that it's such a thoughtful way. For our community to actually look after us, yeah. um, you know, they said we can't afford to to keep the heating on uh, throughout the day. Um, you know, we can only afford to warm it up at night a little bit and and in the morning. So in the day, it's it's actually made it easier for them, uh, where they um, are not having to think about how they're going to stay warm. Fine, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a um, hassle to get out in the cold and get to the get to the center, but. When they got to the center, you know, they they were mentally and spiritually also uh, uplifted, um, which is very very important um, uh, at this stage. And 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 I think we had seventy five year olds attending as well. Wow! And um, that was a, it was a very nice scene to see everybody mix, all the youngsters and and the elderly mix together. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely, it, it, it is a, it's it's just a, a, it's it might be just a small little gesture. But uh, it goes a long way, and we we've seen the the fruit of it as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, that that is uh, all for the news today. Uh, we have gone slightly uh, a couple of minutes over as well, um, but we're now going to be going to our first segment, first main segment for the day. 
Um, and this is, uh, as we mentioned in the introduction for the show as well, new blood test can detect toxic protein years before Alzheimer's symptoms emerge, according to a new study has shown. So this is what we're going to be speaking about uh, in this hour up until the 8 o'clock news. Um, and after that, uh, we'll be speaking about two other um, discoveries um, which show that triple immunotherapy combination as possible treatment for pancreatic cancer um, and we're going to be speaking about the circadian clock on the fruit fly as well. Um, researchers can detect toxic small aggregates of uh, a particular protein in the blood of individuals with Alzheimer's disease, as well as in individuals who showed no signs of cognitive impairment at the time um, the blood sample was taken, but who developed it at a later date. This blood test picks up uh, a ligamus or small misfolded aggregates of the amyloid beta protein, which scientists believe triggers the development of uh, Alzheimer's. So, um, uh, uh, Mubariz, what is Alzheimer's and how does it actually begin? Because when we're speaking about this article, which is pretty much all about Alzheimer's, um, it's, it is essential for our listeners to be aware of what this is and how it actually starts as well. Yeah, so... Um Alzheimer's disease is a brain disorder that slowly destroys memory and thinking skills um, and eventually the ability to carry out the simplest tasks. In most people with the disease, those with the late, one, uh, late uh, onset type symptoms first appear in their mid-60s. Research has shown that the seeds of Alzheimer's are, are planted years, even decades earlier, long before the cognitive impairments surface that make a diagnosis possible. Those seeds are amyloid beta proteins that misfold and clump together, forming small aggregates called oligomers. Over time, through a process, scientists are still trying to understand those toxic oligomers of amyloid beta are thought to develop into Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, obviously, the next question which comes to mind is uh, what does uh, SOBER stand for, which uh, some of our listeners might have heard before as well, um, and what were their findings as well? So SOBER, which stands for Soluble Oligomer Binding Assay, exploits a unique property of the toxic oligomers. When misfolded, amyloid beta proteins begin to clump into oligomers, like Mubarak just mentioned as well. They form a structure known as an alpha sheet. Alpha sheets are not ordinarily found in nature, and past research by Daggett's team showed that alpha sheets tend to bind to other alpha sheets. At the heart of SOBA, um, is a synthetic alpha sheet designed uh, by her team that sh- that can bind uh, to oligomers in samples of either cerebrospinal uh, fluid, uh, cerebrospinal fluid, or blood. The test, <coughs> excuse me, the test then uses standard methods to confirm that the oligomers attached to the test surface are made up of amyloid beta proteins. What clinicians and researchers have wanted is a reliable diagnostic test for Alzheimer's disease. And not just an assay that confirms a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, but one that can also detect signs of the disease before cognitive impairment happens. That's important for individuals' health. (coughs) Sorry. 
That's important for individuals' health and for all the research into how toxic oligomers of amyloid beta go on and cause the damage that they do. Uh, and this is taken from uh, Valerie Daggett, a UW professor of bioengineering and faculty member in the UW Molecular Engineering and Sciences Institute. Uh, she also goes on to say that what we show here is that SOBA may be the basis of such a test. The team tested SOBA on blood samples from 310 research su- uh, subjects who had previously made their blood samples and uh, some of their medical records available for Alzheimer's research. Um, at the time uh, the blood samples had been taken, the subjects were recorded as having no signs of cognitive impairment, mild cognitive impairment, Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia. So uh, detected oligomers in the blood of individuals with mild cognitive impairment and moderate to severe Alzheimer's. In 53 cases, the research subject's diagnosis of Alzheimer's uh, was verified after death by autopsy. Um, and the samples, the blood samples of 52 of them, which had been taken years before the deaths, contained uh, toxic oligomers. Sober detected so uh, uh, Sober also detected uh, oligomers in 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 those members of the control group who uh, records show later developed mild cognitive impairment. <coughs> blood samples from other individuals in the control group who remained unimpaired, lack toxic oligomers. Daggett's team is working with scientists at Alpep, a, uh, a UW sp- a spin-out company, to develop SOBA into a diagnostic test for oligomers. In the study, the team also showed that SOBA easily could be modified to detect toxic oligomers of another type of protein associated with Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia. We are finding that many human diseases are associated with the accu- uh, with, with, with the uh, accumulation of, of toxic oligomers that form these alpha sheet structures, said Duckett. Not just Alzheimer's, but, but also Parkinson's type 2 diabetes and more. Sober is picking up that unique alpha sheet structure, so we hope that this method can help in diagnosing and studying many other protein misfolding diseases. Daggett believes the, the assay has, has further potential. We believe that SOBA could aid in identifying individuals at risk or incubating the disease, as well as serve as a readout of therapeutic efficiency to aid in, in uh, development of early treatments for Alzheimer's disease, she said. Mm-hmm. So uh, some very interesting uh, findings over here. And uh, <clears throat> um, I mean, this brings to mind uh, some narrations of the Holy Prophet Muhammad. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as well. And, 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 and one which automatically uh, um, or, or first uh, comes to mind is that there is no disease that Allah has created except that he has also created its treatment. And from this, this was obviously taken from the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And we can see that however much we feel as if um, some things are out of our hand or something like that when it comes to uh, medication, right? Um, 
from this narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, we can see that whatever disease we are inflicted with or whatever kind of ailment we receive, there is uh, there will always be a cure. Um, if modern technology does not have the answer for it, then then that is one thing. That's, mm. a, that's a separate thing. But uh, eventually... Uh, that treatment will also come into play as well. So, um, I mean, whenever we see that there's a problem, right, there's a plague or there's an outbreak of something, um, eventually, we don't have the the solution right there and then. Um, But eventually, uh, God Almighty puts it in the minds of people and uh, they create uh, a solution for it. We've just experienced that ourselves in our lives with with, with COVID-19, how there was nothing there for, for... the um, vaccines and they've come out with, with with stuff to help us yeah yeah no no most certainly um and with that we're going to be going to our first guest for the show we do have with us on the line dr mahmoud mayna um dr mahmoud booker uh, mayna is a research fellow in sussex neuroscience and vis- uh, visiting science at yob uh, state university which is in nigeria his research uh, majorly focuses on understanding the basic mechanism of uh, alzheimer's disease and concurrently his work partly focuses on understanding mechanisms of dementia uh, in indigenous African populations. Dr. Maina is also passionate about training the next generation of scientists. And for this, he recently established the Biomedical Science Research and Training Center in Nigeria to promote neuroscience research uh, over there and by extension in Africa as well. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome and thank you for, for being with us today. Um, we're t- talking about a very interesting topic, how a new blood test can detect toxic protein years uh, before Alzheimer's symptoms emerge, according to what the uh, new studies have shown. The first question that we wanted to ask you was, what are toxic uh, uh, oligomers and what part do they play in Alzheimer's disease? We've touched on this, uh, but if you can maybe shed a bit more light on it. All right, sure. Um, so these toxic oligomers that you hear about, they can be from different types of proteins. But in terms of Alzheimer's disease, I believe we refer to amyloid beta toxic oligomers, although we can also have another type of oligomer for tau protein. So for amyloid beta toxic oligomers, these are proteins that are first produced as say monomers, like, that is, they are just single proteins, but then they lack sticking to one another to form higher aggregates, like they form the, when one common kind of merge with another, they form dimers, you know, and then they go on to form more, and eventually they form these oligomers. And these oligomers are believed to be responsible for causing brain cell death. So, for example, if you collect oligomers that have been extracted from people that have the Alzheimer's disease, and you treat cells in a culture, like in a lab, in a dish, they kill those cells. If you take those and you treat animal models like mice or rat, it goes on to cause them to lose their memory. So there is a substantial evidence to suggest that these oligomers are responsible for brain cell death. Although when we say oligomers, it's a very, you know, um, it's a term referring to diverse species of this type of aggregate in the brain. It's not a single species, it's, it's quite diverse. Treatment uh, options available for, for 
Alzheimer's disease are currently um, you know only possible after exhibi- exhibiting the symptoms what does the new breakthrough mean for research in in neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer or Parkinson's disease um so first let's talk about uh what this breakthrough uh, is so basically it's uh, a kind of test which is called soba meaning soluble oligomer binding assay that was developed by researchers at the University of Washington that is able to pick up a particular type of abnormal beta oligomers that have a particular structure called alpha sheets. So this test is able to pick that up and uh, they were able to confirm that when they tested on 310 people that uh, donated their plasma samples it accurately helped in diagnosing those that have either uh, mild cognitive impairment, those that have Alzheimer's disease, and it was also able to detect these oligomers in 11 individuals that at that stage didn't have Alzheimer's disease. So later on, those people ended up developing Alzheimer's disease, which shows that the test is quite sensitive, it's highly sensitive. And it is based on the idea of picking up these uh, toxic oligomers that have these particular structures. Now, talking about why an early diagnosis is so important, Mm -hmm. so the thing is, if you look at it, if we are able to diagnose Alzheimer's disease early on, it means that people would have access to medication and medical attention quite early on Mm -hmm. because we know that this is a disease that starts probably 10, 20 years before the first symptoms emerge, which means that by the time that we're able to detect symptoms like we see right now, the brain cells have become so, so much affected that therapies that could be given might not work efficiently. Mm-hmm. And um, this has partly been, uh, you know, by researchers, believe that this has partly been one of the reasons why so many clinical trials have failed in the field of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but of course, apart from you know having access to medication early on, there are so many reasons why early diagnosis is so important because then the patient can be actively involved in their, you know in deciding the type of healthcare or some personal decisions. You know they can also kind of be actively involved in kind of uh, participating in clinical trials and uh, other things to help towards finding effective therapy. So there are so many, so many advantages. Yeah, yeah, no, no, most certainly. And that is why um, it's it's uh, essential um, for, for us for us to, to understand these things so that we can uh, make proper use of it as well. And if we know about it beforehand, if we, if we know uh, 10, 15, 20 years before um, through exhibiting the symptoms, um, then obviously um, there's so much more benefit that we can see from this uh, rather than tackling it um, at the 11th hour. Obviously, this will be much more beneficial for the individuals and the family members as well. Um, Absolutely. Dr. Mayna, um, what are some of the key factors that contribute to the early onset of uh, neurodegenerative uh, diseases such as Alzheimer's? So um, in, in most neurodegenerative diseases, uh, well, uh, in, in this case, Alzheimer's disease, uh, we have an early onset and, uh, you know, some kind of 
present later on in life, this early onset form of the disease are usually kind of driven by genetic uh, genetics, so a genetic family history. So, for example, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, there are three main genes uh, which, uh, when affected, and uh, an individual is able to inherit them, they, uh, in most situations, end up developing this disease. Um, why I said in most situations, they end up developing diseases because, for example, uh, so let's talk about these genes first. So we have a gene on presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and another for amyloid precursor protein. And all these are associated with the production of amyloid beta, which we talk about going on from these toxic oligomers. And in most situations, people who have these mutations end up developing symptoms before the age of 65 years. So clearly, genetics plays a huge role for this early onset form of disease. But the percentage of people having this, the, uh, the early onset is not that huge. And um, uh, two or three years ago, uh, there was this uh, discovery that was made, which is quite, quite exciting. It is uh, based, even though it's based on one individual, but we hope that there are probably more of that. Um, the individual is a Colombian woman who had um, this mutation that should cause her to develop Alzheimer's disease, so personally uh, one mutation which I mentioned earlier. However, she also had another mutation on a different gene called APOE, which uh, kind of made or slowed down the disease onset for her until her early 70s when she started, uh, you know, showing some symptoms of memory loss. So even though we know that these uh, mutations do cause someone to have the disease, but these new discoveries are telling us that there is so much we don't know, and potentially in the future we might even discover that having this mutation does not automatically guarantee that one is going to end up developing the disease. So more research is obviously needed to understand this. Mm. So um, definitely if someone's experienced um, one of their elders in their family going through something like that, they should, um, from a very early age, um, have be, you know, be, be on a lookout and... and um, you know, looking for any ways of protecting themselves as well. Um, one of your research interests uh, I- I includes exploring the development of Alzheimer's disease, especially in regard to the role of the protein tau. Regarding this area, could you please shed some light on your findings? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, these, uh, so in Alzheimer's disease, uh, there are two key hallmarks that uh, are used to confirm that um, someone has the disease. And these uh, amyloid beta plaques, which we talked about, these plaques are the aggregates of the amyloid beta that, go, that goes from oligomers to fibrils and essentially forming these aggregates. And then we have another protein called tau protein. So this tau protein, for so long, it has been known to help in regulating or stabilizing uh, you know, some structures inside the cells called microtubules, which are like the railroad tracks that enable cells to move their cargoes from one part of the cell to another. So for so long, it has been known that when these 
ported now becomes affected, the you could say that the movement of cargo has now become affected, and that is believed to be responsible for uh, driving the disease. But what we are doing, so, so a few decades ago, uh, it was discovered that this protein can be found in other parts of the cells. And in our work, specifically, we found that it's found inside a place in the cell called nucleolus, which is involved with uh, the production of raw materials needed in the cells. And we were able to find that if you uh, remove this uh, protein tau to some extent in the cells, it causes increased raw materials production. And this tells us, therefore, that it is important for regulating the production of raw materials. And what the, why this is so important is because there are so many drugs that are being produced targeting this other protein as well, tau. And uh, it's so important for us, therefore, to fully understand what it does so that the drugs produced would not have any unwanted side effects on it. And also so that uh, any therapy... Uh, we could even target therapy towards this area of raw materials if we are able to further understand that it's critical in driving the disease. Dr. Mahmoud Maynab, um, thank you very, very much for your time uh, here at The Breakfast Show. Um, it was a pleasure having you with us. Um, may uh, God Almighty help you in, in all your research in uh, undertaking and helping those affected by uh, Alzheimer's and and. Um, many more other unfortunate diseases. Uh, thank you very much and may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Amin. Warakallahu. 0208687 is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Mahmoud Mena, uh, who is a research fellow in uh, Sussex Neuroscience here in the UK and a visiting scientist at Yob State University in Nigeria. Um, just coming towards an end for uh, for, for this first segment... <coughs> We can see that... Uh, you know, um, you mentioned uh, before we took on Dr. Mahmoud that how um, um, there's always a, 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 a cure for any disease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that just reminded me that one of the attributes, uh, the divine attributes of, of um, Allah the Almighty, of God the Almighty is um, Ashafi, uh, which is the, the, the healer. Yeah. So, uh, you know, with the recent um, advancement of, of, of technology and, and medicine, it's become quite um, easy uh, to forget that the cures and treatments which, you know, human beings that we've, we've gone through and we've managed to get to, uh, that we've been able to discover, are only due to the blessings uh, bestowed upon us by God Almighty. So we should always be grateful for, um, for all the cures that we have, for all the treatments that we have, and we should pray for the future yeah. treatments to uh, help uh, all the people in, in any sort of disease that are affected. Most certainly, most certainly. Um, and uh, there's another narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him as well, in which he says that um, there is a cure for everything uh, except death. So yeah. so this is something which is inevitable. Um, and even in the Holy Quran, it states that uh, each one of us is going to taste uh, death as well. Um, and uh, and uh, so, yeah, so we can try to uh, elongate our lives as much mm. as we can and have uh, healthy lives uh, as much as is possible. But uh, we cannot avoid death. And that brings us to a short break. Here is the 8 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. 
and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar and Mubarak Zamini, and uh, we are now going to be discussing uh, triple immunotherapy combination as possible treatment for pancreatic cancer. If you are just tuning in, um, then uh, before the news, we were speaking about new blood tests can detect toxic protein years before Alzheimer's symptoms. Uh, symptoms emerge Um, and after this uh, study we're going to be speaking about uh, another study on the circadian clock of the fruit fly so do stay tuned for that as well Um, getting straight into this topic the researchers at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center have discovered a novel immunotherapy combination targeting checkpoints in both T cells and myeloid uh, suppressor cells that uh, successfully reprogrammed the tumor immune microenvironment time time um, and significantly improved anti-tumor responses in preclinical models of pancreatic cancer so uh, mubariz uh, before we go into the findings um, and discuss the duotherapy combination and the tr- uh, the triple immunotherapy as well what what is the relation between uh, mice and human uh, pancreatic cancers so um the researchers used uh, comprehensive immune profiling in mice and human pancreatic cancer because they have um high dimensional immune profiles in order to systematically identify uh, mechanisms of immunotherapy resistance and investigate potential therapeutic targets um and mice as as uh, preclinical research animals for experimental animal models of pancreatic cancer through um injection of of pancreatic cancer cell lines or manipulation of the immune response so that um cancer cells are formed in mice uh, it was done so that researchers could find out the success of of um immunotherapy to kill cancer cells before being applied to the patients um so the findings of of the study uh some other the, the the you know the study identified triple immunotherapy uh combination as a possible treatment for uh pancreatic uh cancer the researchers observed that the triple immunotherapy combination um it, you know it slowed the tumor development um there's higher levels of indicators of anti-tumor immunity and significantly improved survival rates compared to by treatment with antibodies alone the triple combination uh, resulted in complete tumor regression and an increased overall survival in 90% of preclinical models compared to dual immunotherapy which only slowed tumor cell development well wow. So um does the duotherapy um combination completely eliminate and uh, uh, does it completely eliminate established tumors um well the answer to that is is no the uh, duotherapy combination does not completely eliminate established tumors the researchers examined efforts to to reprogram time uh, to make tumors more sensitive to immunotherapy at baseline time contained numerous uh, myeloid derived suppressor cells expressing cxcr2 
a protein um, associated with immunosuppressive uh, cell recruitment. Inhibiting CXCR2 alone decreased MDSC migration and inhibits tumor growth, but it was not curative. This prompted the researchers to consider a, a combination targeting 41BB, LAG3 and CXCR2. Hmm. So some very interesting uh, findings, uh, to say the least. We're going to be speaking more about this and getting a bit more detail um, from our professionals as well. We have Professor Jennifer Morton uh, on the line with us, who's a group leader at the Cancer Research UK Beetson Institute in Glasgow and a professor in the University of Glasgow School of Cancer Sciences. In 2007, she joined the Beetson Institute, where she now leads a lab focused on gaining a better understanding of pancreatic cancer and identifying new and improved therapies for the patients. Uh, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Nice to speak to you. And uh, you. the pleasure is all ours. And uh, thank you for being with us, uh, Professor Morton. Um, for for the benefit of our listeners, can you briefly explain what pancreatic cancer is and how it uh, how it arises as well, please? I I can yes. Um, so the pancreas is a, is an organ in the body that produces your digestive enzymes and hormones. Um. And the most aggressive type of cancer starts in the cells that make the digestive juices. With with all cancers and with pancreas, it develops when abnormal cells start to divide and grow in an uncontrolled way and they can form a tumour. And that happens because the DNA in the cells, that's your blueprint of how, how cells behave, um, that becomes altered, uh, you get mistakes, and and that they essentially stop cells from um, uh, die, dying when they're when they're um, faulty, and it allows them to proliferate massively. Uh, we don't we don't know how it arises. Um, mm. There are some factors that increase risk, like smoking and obesity. Um, but most that's about thirty percent of cancers. For the rest, we don't we don't know what the cause what the causation is. Um, it, it, sorry, just leading on from there, it's correct that sometimes pancreatic cancer can be underlying for uh, maybe even I know a few months to a year before being actually diagnosed. Yes, so it's really difficult to diagnose. The symptoms are fairly vague: back pain, stomach pain, hmm. um, changes in bathroom habits, um, and so people are diagnosed late. Um, there's, there's around. Ten and a half thousand people diagnosed every year. Um, it's the tenth commonest cancer in the UK, but it's among the leading causes of cancer death because it's diagnosed so late and because the treatments that we have at the moment are are pretty poor. Um, and so those those rates continue to grow. And the five year survival is really low. It's it's around six seven percent. Um, Professor, what is the difference between immunotherapy, chemotherapy and, and radiotherapy, if you can explain for our listeners, please? Sure. So chemotherapy um, is essentially using a, almost, it's, a, it's quite a sledgehammer approach. So um, it uses cytotoxic drugs, um, drugs that, that kill cells to try and kill cancer cells. Um there are recent develops that tra- developments that try and improve these therapies. Um, 
But essentially, the aim is to kill tumour cells faster than killing normal cells. Mm. They are quite toxic therapies. Um, Immunotherapy, there are different forms, but all of them want to try and mobilise their immune system to fight cancer by really improving its ability to recognise and attack cancer cells. Um, So... Our immune system always works to protect the body against infection and disease, including cancer, and it should be able to spot and destroy faulty cells. Um, but cancer can get quite clever at evading the immune system. So immunotherapy works to overcome some of these mechanisms um, that the cancer has. One of the one of the commonest ones is that cancer cells can produce signals that stop the immune system from attacking it. Um, so immunotherapy, um, particularly checkpoint inhibitors, which this study talks about and which have been used, different inhibitors in other studies, they stop cancers from, from doing that. And then radiotherapy is, is a type of high-energy irradiation, usually X-rays, that destroys cancer cells by damaging their DNA so that they can't survive. But the downside, similar to chemotherapy, is that that radiation also affects normal cells, so Mm. it can cause quite bad side effects. Right. Um, Professor, you also published um, some papers on CXCR2 inhibition uh, a few years ago. Does the... um, does the study match the findings of your own research? Do you think it provides a a promising approach for a new treatment? Uh, yeah, so this study is similar to our research and we also targeted this molecule called, called CXCR2 and we found that that could allow the immune system to come in and recognise the cancer more and we used some of the more older established immunotherapies in combination to try and increase the benefits of that therapy. This study, they've they've identified new um, blocking mechanisms on the the good immune cells that should kill cancer. They've identified new mechanisms that kind of stop it. And you want want mechanisms on your immune system that stop it from going Mm. crazy. Um, and they've, they've they've identified new ones that they can target in this mm. study that that may be more specific to pancreatic cancer. So in that in that regard, it, it's it's similar, but it's 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 different. Um, it it does it does provide a pretty promising approach, I would say. Um, all of the drugs that they've used are in clinical trials as single agents. So it, it could be quite a quick route to the clinic to actually get this combination into patients. Ulti- ultimately, it has to be tested in patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and how d- can um, you know the public engage and help with research in this field then? So the, the, the public <coughs> make a massive difference to our work and to everybody's work in cancer research. They make a huge impact Um Cancer Research UK is who I work for and they've invested a lot of money into pancreatic cancer research, looking at kinder, more effective treatments and, and early diagnosis. 
um, and it's one of their top priorities. And obviously, it's it's my top priority. Um, what what gives me a lot of hope for pancreatic cancer is that if you look at other cancers, funding's made a massive difference to survival. The survival rates have really shot up, and I'm really hopeful and optimistic that that can happen with pancreatic cancer. Mm. Um, you know, and we're going to we're not going to cure everybody tomorrow, but incremental gains can make a big difference. Yeah. So I'm really optimistic, but I would say that people can really help by raising funds and raising awareness, um, raising awareness of the disease, yeah. um, trying to get people if they have any symptoms that they don't like to get to their GP. Um, but we, we couldn't do the work that we do. We couldn't do research without the support of the public. And, mm. and every discovery we make is is really thanks to all the supporters donating money, participating in events, volunteering, getting involved in the campaigns. Mm. And we, you know, that's vital to continue our work and to see improvements in this cancer like we have seen in other cancers. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, Professor Jennifer Morton, um, it was a pleasure having you here with us this morning with uh, at the, the the breakfast show at the Voice of Islam Radio. Um, you know, we will we will pray for you that may God Almighty help you in in, in all your research um, to help um, patients with uh, pancreatic cancer and for um, the treatment for for this um, disease. Uh, thank you very much, and may God be with you. Hey, and you too. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. That was Professor Jennifer Morton, uh, who, like we mentioned earlier as well, um, is a group leader at the Cancer Research UK Beetson Institute in Glasgow and a professor in the University of Glasgow School of Cancer Sciences. Uh, in 2007, she joined the Beetson Institute, where she now leads a, fa- uh, a lab focused on gaining a better understanding of pancreatic cancer and identifying new and improved therapies for the patients as well. Um and uh, I mean, with that, we're going to be going straight to our next guest for the show. We do have with us on the line, Professor Bill Greenhoff, um, who is a professor in medical oncology at the University of Liverpool and is the operational director of the Uni- uh, Liverpool Good um, Clinical Practice Laboratory Facility. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for being with us. We're talking about a very interesting topic here, um, how study discovers triple immunotherapy combination as possible treatment for pancreatic cancer. And the first question that we wanted to ask you was one of your papers uh, back from 2017 associated uh, pancreatic cancer with multi-morbidities. Uh, uh, Can you tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit uh, about how and which main diseases we should look out for? Well, when you develop cancer, you can uh, develop other diseases. One thing is if you've got a cancer growing in your pancreas, it's likely to cause inflammation. That's pancreatitis, and that's, uh, that can give some of the symptoms that we associate with pancreatic cancer. More unusually, you can get the development of diabetes, diabetes mellitus, the sort of diabetes you know, but it's not... Uh, what we call type 2 diabetes, which people normally would assume if you have a a sudden onset of uh, inability to control your glucose, we'd say other person has 
have type 2 diabetes. And that's how most people are diagnosed. They say uh, they have type 2 diabetes, but 1% of those approximately, that's only, so 99 don't, Mm -hmm. but one out of 100 people where you get that diagnosis and they say you have type 2 diabetes, uh, you have to control your uh, sugar, this is um, a serious disease, but they don't think it's cancer, in 1% of cases, that those individuals have cancer. Mm-hmm. And that's something you should bear in mind, but remember, in the vast majority of cases, it isn't. But if you had, for example, a family history of pancreatic cancer, and you were concerned, you had other, perhaps other symptoms, like uh, an ache in your arm, a feeling of depression, various other symptoms then it could be something of concern. You probably should talk to your doctor and say, you sure this isn't something else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I mean, it's, it's always better to be on the safe side and, and doing maybe extra checks just to confirm uh, whether or not that is the case as well. Um, Professor Greenhoff, can you also tell us a little bit about what non-immunogenic means uh, in terms of cancer, please? Um, I think you, that word has come from uh, Ron DePino's, uh paper that you talked about earlier. Yeah, and exactly. uh, I hate it. I think it's a horrible term. Um, I can understand why he's used that term, because the common way that's described is hot and cold. People say there is a hot cancer and a cold cancer. Mm-hmm. And what they mean by that is when uh, you develop um, cancer, you always get mutations you get things that create proteins that look different from the normal protein Mm -hmm. and like any strange thing like a bacteria in you you can recognize that the immune system can recognize that they can respond to that and they can kill the cancer cell and that uh, is that kind of response obviously is incredibly beneficial in terms of cancer but it has uh, an issue in the fact that you have to be very, very careful in your as a as an organism to make sure that you aren't destroying your own cells. So it it really comes down. So when people talk about hot and cold, they really mean some cancers have lots and lots of mutations that make them look very, very different, and that these can be picked up by the immune system, and the cancer can be destroyed. And that's a hot cancer and people describe pancreatic cancer in those terms as usually being cold it's a very, it's a relatively small number of mutations things that are different and they're hard to recognize by the immune system so uh the reason that ron de pino's used not use that term hot and cold is because when he says non-immunogenic he says that the immune system isn't working and the the, the reason that in pretty much all cancers the immune system doesn't work properly to kill the cancer cell is because the cancer uses your own your body's natural system to prevent you having an autoimmune that means you mm-hmm. prevent you responding to your own body and prevent that that happening and what uh, Rhonda Pino's t- paper is talking about is very much this way that cancer damps down the immune system and he's used drugs that switch back on that immune system and if he's used the word non-immunogenic because he said it isn't because 
pancreatic cancer has few mutations, that it isn't responding to these very important class of, class of drugs. And I can sympathize with the way he's using that, that term because there has been a general assumption that pancreatic cancer is not going to be uh, one of the cancers that we can really make great inroads with, with these kinds of therapies. And what his work is showing is actually that may not be true. We may be able to do something even in pancreatic cancer, even in the cancers they're calling cold mm -hmm. because, and that's why he's used the term non-immunogenic, because he said it isn't about the number of mutations, it's about the nature of the dumping down of the immune system. And that's why he's used that term. Um, there are many other uh, therapeutic targets for, for pancreatic cancer. Um, so why can we not block all targets um, at once? <clears throat> But the problem with cancer very very simply is it's you um the cancer cell is one of your cells that is growing improperly and the way you get rid of and kill a cancer cell is because you are effectively targeting something that is not abnormal to you and mm. uh the the traditional system of treating cancer chemotherapy was basically that uh cancer cells grow let's kill the growing cells and let's kill them before we, uh, and this is sounds um, harsh, but really it was a question of let's kill the cancer cells before we kill the person. And the more targets you hit, and when we say, why, why don't we have multiple, multiple therapeutic targets and hit all of them all the time is basically because you will potentially cause more harm than you do good. So we need to be fairly specific on what we target, and it's difficult. Hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does indeed. Um, and what is needed before uh, novel therapies can be executed in, in clinical practice? You know, how long would this actually take then? Well, let's take the um, paper that you mentioned, which is this paper that has been done in mice. Hmm. Yeah. So they have shown that they have a beneficial <clears throat> effect in mice. Now, we are pretty good at curing cancer in mice. Okay. But to get this to work in uh, humans, first of all, we've got to sh make sure that those therapies are safe and we need <laughs> to make sure that they don't uh, kill the patient. Mm. It's as simple as that. So first, that's the first step, and that hasn't been done with this group of therapies yet, and that can be done. That's... What we uh, we term this as a, a phase one clinical trial. That's it is safe. Okay. And then we have a phase two clinical trial and we say it's safe and it does something. It does what it says on the tin. And then and only then when we said it, it does something and it's safe, can you start looking at groups of patients and doing a randomized trial where you use the therapy in one group of patients and you use the best standard of care that we already have in the other. And then when you show that it is safe, it does something and that something is good for the patient, then it gets into the clinic. Is there not a possibility um, that that can be used for, for patients that are, that are in palliative care? That's a very good point. And the, the truth is that by and large, that it doesn't happen because of 
a, a moral imperative not to do harm. So uh, when you're when we're saying that somebody is in palliative care, there is a a temptation to say, and it's a very reasonable temptation. Well, you know, they're going to die anyway. They're, they're in a condition that is um, hopeless. Hmm. Anything we we do could be better than that. Yeah. But uh, I, it, it is an ethical position. It's one I I hold that the if you do harm, then that is unacceptable. And if you are doing harm to these individuals, and that the the tragic truth is that with most of these therapies, it is more likely that it will do um, harm than yeah. good when you start. I was just going to say that, yeah, yeah. In in regards to chemotherapy, that there's a lot more harm done um, before yep. you actually see any results. Um, yep. So, I mean, again, it's yeah, you're right. I mean, where to families that are in that situation, that um, they may they probably would. Um, you know, opt in for it, but again, you're right. It's 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 a it's a, it's a totally uh, ethical thing that needs to be thought about. Um, doctor, could I um, ask you a bit more about immunotherapy? How um, how many cases does the NHS uh, cover in the UK, and um, is there you know is is there, is there, is it likely that we can see more cases of immunotherapy being used in the UK? Well, for some conditions, immunotherapy is has really made big inroads. This is a for uh, cases of uh, colorectal cancer. Remember when I made, mentioned that thing of hot and cold? Yeah. There are cancers that are, because of uh, those cancers are not good at repairing DNA, they, uh, they have lots and lots of mutant proteins and they're very hot and immunotherapy is being used in that with great success in these uh, patients. And that's in colorectal cancer, melanoma. There are a large number of cancers. Now, just if you have colorectal cancer and you had that genetic instability 10 years ago, that was a really bad sign. It was something very, very bad. This would be a bad bit of news to tell the patient. The development and the introduction of immunotherapy into the NHS means that now you can tell that patient, yes, you've got a hot cancer. This is a very aggressive form of cancer, but we have a therapy that will be effective in that. Mm. And that that's commonly used. For pancreatic cancer, and one of the reasons I think this uh, publication is important, even though this is at a very, very early stage, is because there has been a fatalism, an idea that for pancreatic cancer, this is just not going to work. Mm. And what this paper by Rhonda Pina says is, no, it's it's not hopeless. There there are different forms of this immune suppression, and we just have to choose the right way of targeting it. And, and we can do this in mice. So maybe if we develop this further, we can do it in humans Hopefully. as well. But Hopefully. it will take a while. It will take a while. Yeah, definitely. Um, and sorry, uh, just just taking a, 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 another question from you. Um, in regards to genetics, um, you mentioned that if someone's you know got it going on in their family, it's, it's something that you should. Uh, I mean, obviously coming from well, I lost my father to pancreatic cancer back in September, fortunately. Yeah, so um, is there is there proper research that actually shows any study that shows that um, there is something in the genes uh, to be looked out for? Yes, but, uh, but there is no question about this. There are many, many families where they you have a 
very high predisposition. It effectively means that it is very, very likely that if you carry a particular mutation in a particular gene, you will at some point in your life develop pancreatic cancer. Now, these families are very rare, Hmm. fortunately, but they exist. And we know in some cases exactly what that mutation is that they are carrying, that they had from birth, that means that they are predisposed to develop pancreatic cancer. Now, I'm very, very sorry to hear about your father. Um, I have got to tell you that the the probability that that makes a difference to your risk is very small. So obviously, the vast majority of pancreatic cancers don't come from families with that kind of familial risk. So one case of pancreatic cancer in the family isn't something to be uh, greatly concerned about. Okay. Two cases, it becomes unusual. Hmm. And then you have to ask the question. And also, it depends on the whole family history. And there's a, we have a, a group called Europac that would be happy to consider anybody's uh, family history and be able to either reassure or to say, yes, this is worth investigating further. Okay. Okay. Um, Professor Bill Greenhoff, uh, thank you very much for, for being here with us on, on The Breakfast Show at The Voice of Islam Radio. Um, it was a pleasure uh, talking to you and, and uh, bugging you with all uh, our questions today. Um, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank uh, you very much. We, we, we pray for, for, for your future um, uh, research and for your, for your bright future ahead as well. May Allah the Almighty be with you at all stages. Thank you very much. And that makes a difference. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Bill Greenhoff, uh, who is a professor in media, uh, med- medical oncology at the University of Liverpool and is the operational director of the Liverpool Good Clinic uh, Clinical Practice Laboratory Facility, sharing his thoughts with us as well. A very interesting and, and delightful conversation, uh, mm. which we've learnt uh, so much um, about immunotherapy and uh, pancreatic cancer. Um, and a lot of other things which were linked with that as well. Um, we were speaking a little bit about um, the a cure and how Allah the Almighty has made um, a, a cure for everything, isn't it? For all of these diseases that we see. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of time um, uh, that we understand and uh, come to the conclusion of how to treat things as well. Um, Professor... Um, uh, Greenhalf also mentioned as well that we are very good at uh, treating cancer in mice, um, yeah. but it's just a matter of time to to take that and uh, use that uh, in humans as well, um, with the tweaks that need to be done um, uh, to, to to make sure that um, we can treat cancer within uh, mankind as well, uh, because ultimately that's the that's the goal, isn't it? Um, and th- this uh, was talking about this topic, uh, a question. Uh, does sometimes arise uh, in in the minds of many, and that is in regards to suffering. Well, <clears throat> the answer to this is that uh, uh, we can see from the Holy Quran as well that it is He who has created death and life that He might try you. 
which of you is best in deeds and he is the mighty the most forgiving this is chapter 67 verse 2 and and 3 um the holy prophet may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him he also said as well that whosoever visits a sick person for the sake of allah a heavenly cooler will announce may your every step be blessed and may you be rewarded with an abode in paradise um one last um uh, narration that I like to share as well of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace this time and that is that it is recorded that at times those who were ill would go straight to the door of the promised Messiah upon whom be peace seeking medicine and expressing their grief sometimes even staying for an hour at a time yet the promised Messiah upon whom be peace would not usher them away but instead would listen patiently and attentively the promised Messiah upon whom be peace expressed that tending to the ill is also a matter of faith and uh, something which should not be neglected by true believers. So uh, from, from, from these uh, three narrations, we can see that if, Allah, if, if we are going through something, going through a difficult time, um, obviously right now we're talking about pancreatic cancer, um, um, but there's many, it can be absolutely anything. It can be a mental thing. It can be a physical thing. Um, it can be an issue at work, whatever, right? Uh, any mm-hmm. difficulty that we're going through. Uh, the Holy Prophet, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that for, for a b- believer, even the prickling of a thorn is uh, something which will um, wash away his sins and uh, it can be a means for him to enter paradise, him or, him or her. Um, and it's just uh, a matter of being steadfast at that time, being patient at that time and never losing our trust in God Almighty. Um, uh, we, we see that there's another narration of the, of the Holy Quran as well in which he says that surely it is to Allah that we belong and to Allah we will return. And if we know that it is to him that we will return, then surely we should be steadfast uh, in our ways. We should be patient. Um, and uh, obviously from these other narrations, we can see that we will receive blessings from uh, visiting the sick, visiting uh, the ill. Uh, and if anyone with such a such an ailment or such a problem or such a disease or such a difficulty comes to us, then we shouldn't usher them away. Rather, we should be uh, careful in, in the way that we attend uh, to them and uh, l- listen to them attentively as well. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Um, also, we've spoken about um, types of treatments that they are immunotherapy, chemotherapy and radiotherapy and uh, many others. But there's also um, one thing that we, we should look into at the same time, which is um, homeopathic um, medication. Um, and they, well, well, I mean, there may be many people that don't agree mm-hmm. uh, with homeopathic, but it's something to look into. Yeah. Um, there's uh, medicine like carcinosin and, and, and other medication which help with, um, with, with stopping cancer cells. Um, <coughs> it's, it's been proven by people that have actually used these medications. So if there are people out there that are going uh, through um, unfortunate times, you know, you should avail all, all options. Definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, when when we are afflicted with uh, a problem, uh, with a difficulty, then it's uh, it's up to us to exhaust all of the avenues, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's not simply enough to take one type of medication, but uh, we should take all types of medication. And um, something that uh, uh, I believe it was the first caliph of the Promised Messiah upon whom be peace. He was also a um, a hakim, a um, 
uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, more like a uh, herbal herbal doctor. Uh, yeah, herbal medication. Exactly, exactly. And people would come to him for uh, for for medication when they were uh, when they were going through difficult times and stuff. Um, and he he would give the medication, but at the same time he would say that you have to pray as well. Yeah. Because uh, there are there are different types of cures, and you, we don't know what kind of cure is going to work. Whether it's uh, uh, our normal conventional medicine, whether it's homeopathic, like you mentioned, whether yeah. it's herbs, um, whether it's some kind of acupuncture or something yeah. like that, whether it's prayer, it, all of these things. And I shouldn't say whether it's prayer, rather, it should. It's all of these things with the combination of prayer, which is going to be the most useful. Um, and that is something that we definitely uh, should always keep in mind as well. We are running into the the, uh, the time for the last segment. So uh, without further ado, we'll go straight into that. Um, there's a new study on the circadian clock uh, of the fruit fly. So the higher the temperatures, the faster uh, physiological processes, processes are. But there is an exception, the so-called circadian clock which regulates the sleep-wake uh, cycle in organisms. A fascinating question for scientists is why the inner clock runs in an almost unchanging way despite fluctuations in temperatures. This is a phenomenon, a ph- phenomenon known as temperature compensation. Studies, sorry, studies indicate that different molecular mechanisms contribute to this. So in organisms, the rate of uh, physiological uh, processes always uh, increase um, as the temperature increases. Um, However, there is an exception, and that is the circadian clock, which is responsible for regulating the sleep-wake cycle in organisms. The inner clock runs in a a constant, um, uh, consistent, uh, almost unchanging way, despite fluctuations in temperature, like we just mentioned, a phenomenon known as uh, temperature condensation. Studies have found that different molecular mechanisms contribute to this. A team of biologists headed by Professor Ralph Stanus um, from the University of Münster, uh, Germany, and in collaboration with the teams at Dalha- Dalhousie University in Canada and the University of Mainz in Germany, conducted research on this topic. Um, and <coughs> sorry, and the results of their fascinating work have been published in the journal Current Biology. Um, the method for this is basically. And this is where it gets a bit tricky and we'll need the help of our guest who's coming on in a few minutes as well. But uh, scientists produced fruit fly mutants with a modification in the period gene per um, uh, 1530A um, using modern molecular genetics uh, uh, methods. Um, And this is uh, mutagenesis and homologous recombination um, and tested them to see whether their sleep-wake cycle um, and as a result, their running activity differed uh, depending on the ambient temperature. Using a variety of methods, the researchers uh, visualized the clock genes and <coughs> sorry, uh, using a variety of methods, the researchers uh, visualized the clock genes and their activity in the brain and neurons. Among other things, a new method called a locally activa- activable bioluminescence, um, LABL, was used. And this uh, method will uh, was uh, developed by the Munster team in collaboration with researchers in Canada. This method uh, made it possible to measure rhythmic um, 
a, a rhythmic uh, gene expression in clock neurons, uh, which only make up a fraction of all brain neurons in living flies. Um, so, what were the findings uh, of this uh, of this study, Mubariz? Um, so, um, the findings was that a point mutation was um, discovered in the fruit fly um, uh, Drosophila um, melanogaster, which leads to a temperature dependent lengthening of circadian clock periods. This is um, located in a central uh, clock gene known as a period. Flies with this, uh, with this per 1530A mutation display a normal, wa- uh, normal sleep-wake rhythm of 24 hours at 18 degrees Celsius. At 29 degrees Celsius, the inner clock runs about five hours slower. I, it lasts for 29 hours. This lengthening of, of periods also aff- uh, affects the activity of the period gain, uh, of the period gene in the clock uh, neurons of the brain. Normally, the protein concerned, um, uh, for example, so period uh, is is gradually uh, changed chemically <coughs> within twenty four hours. Name, <coughs> namely, it is um, phosphorylated, meaning a, a a phosphate group is introduced. After maximum uh, phosphorylation, it is degraded. Again, the process is usually the same at temperatures between 18 and 29 degrees Celsius, where fruit flies are active. As the researchers uh, showed, um, as the researchers showed that phosphorylation uh, 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 occurs in a normal way in the in, in in the mutant at 18 degrees Celsius, but decreases with increasing temperature. This leads to a stabilization of the period protein at warmer temperatures. Um, we will um, uh, we've, we're lucky to have our our guest with us for this uh, important subject for this important segment. Uh, we have with us um, Professor Ralph uh, Stanuski. Um, Professor Ralph is is at the uni- is a professor at the University of 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 Munster, Germany, where he continues his studies on the circadian clock. His research focuses on how the circadian clock is synchronized to natural light, dark, and temperature cycles, and how clocks can maintain constant clock speed despite increasing temperatures. A phenomenon known as temperature compensation. Good morning, Professor, and welcome to the Breakfast Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure uh, to having you as well. Um, so let's get straight into it. Um, you know, can you explain why did you use uh, fruit flies as, as mutants in your research on circadian rhythms? Uh, yeah, so this is uh, not just me who uh, is using fruit flies. It's a, it's a model organism that is uh, used in the whole world, in, in all laboratories, uh, mm. uh, studying all kinds of uh, biological phenomena, not just circadian clocks. So it's, for example, used in cancer research or in developmental biology. Uh, so, so many, um, al- almost all aspects you can think of, think mm. of can be studied in the fruit fly. And uh, it's remarkable that, that so many genes that control uh, different 
different parts of biology are conserved between fruit flies and humans and and that that is the reason why uh, why so many researchers use drosophila melanogaster this this little fruit fly mm. uh, as a model organism yeah, because you can learn many many things about uh, general um, uh, things in biology that also apply to uh, to to us Okay, that's that's quite interesting. So, um, according to your research, you know the the activity of of fruit flies is affected by temperature fluctuation. So, mm-hmm. what about humans then? Um, yeah. So, so the all also so so all organisms on on this planet, at least all organisms that are exposed to to the uh, daily changes of of light and dark, hmm. and to the daily changes uh, of of warm and cold that go along usually uh, with with light and dark so it's warmer during during uh, the day and usually colder at night yeah and uh, and all the organisms use this this regular changes of light and temperature to set their clocks yeah to set their endogenous circadian clocks that drive for example the sleep wake rhythm or or feeding rhythms and so on yeah mm. Uh, and in humans, uh, of course, the main, uh, what we call sidegeber, the main synchronizing cue is is the light dark cycle. Yeah? So, for example, if you if you fly to New York or uh, or to India, you have to shift you have to shift your clock to the new time. Yeah. yeah? And and your body clock uses the light for that. Yeah. So mm. slowly it will adjust to the to the new. Uh, to the new time regime. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, um, so I mean, uh, humans are, are are warm-blooded animals, if you wish, so that we keep our our temperature relatively constant mm. around thirty-seven degrees. Yeah? yeah. But nevertheless, um, our body uses uh, its own temperature cycle to set to set uh, its clocks, for example, in the liver. Yeah. So, so you, most people know that our body temperature is actually not constant over the day but it changes by about one and a half degrees okay. on a on a on a daily basis yeah, yeah? yeah. so we have a, temp- a body temperature rhythm okay and this this body temperature rhythm nobody i mean knows what it's good for i mean i, I mean researchers know but in the, i guess most of the the, the public do, don't know why we actually have that rhythm and this this body temperature rhythm is controlled by our circadian clock in the brain. Yeah, so we have a, 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 a it's it's located in the su- so-called suprachiasmatic nuclei. That's where our body clock. It's a, it's a group of ten thousands of neurons that control our our sleep wake cycle, for example. And this 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 brain clock also controls is responsible for this body temperature cycle of mm-hmm. one and one point five degrees. Yeah. Yeah. And and this body temperature cycle is used to synchronize clocks that cannot see the light in our body. For example, the clock that we have in our liver, yeah, and in yeah. our kidneys. And these clocks are very important to to control, to organize our physiology in a in a rhythmic in a rhythmic fashion. So, for example, in the liver, that all our enzymes that are used. To digest for digestion of uh, uh, of food, yeah, uh, that that these enzymes are not produced all the time during the day. That would be a, a waste of energy, yeah, but that they're only produced when they're actually needed. So 
So the body knows when food is being expected and then gears up before that to produce, uh, to produce the, the required enzymes. Yeah? Hmm. And, and, and this rhythm in, in, these, in these peripheral organs, uh, for example, as I said, liver and kidney, those are synchronized to the, to the light-dark cycle via the SCN controlling the body temperature rhythm. Yeah? So this temperature cycle synchronizes peripheral clocks in our body. So uh, what benefits can we get from, from uh, the research of circadian rhythms in fruit flies for our health? For, for humans, yes. you mean? Um, so you, 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 you may know that um, uh, the, the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology was awarded in 2017 to three uh, researchers working on the circadian clock of fruit flies. Yeah? Jeffrey Hall, Michael Young, and Michael Rosbesch in the United States. Okay. They basically figured out how the circadian clock works in fruit flies. Yeah, over many years. Hmm. And uh, the reason why they got the Nobel Prize for medicine is one, one reason is, of course, that it was very difficult uh, to find out how an organism can measure time yeah, molecularly. And, and they, they identified all the important genes that are, able, that are involved and able to do this. Yeah? And uh, the, the, that, that is one reason. The, 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 the other reason is which is equally important, I guess, is that over the years it was found out, as I mentioned before, that the same genes that control the circadian clock in fruit flies control the circadian clock in humans. Yeah? So it's mm -hmm. another example of this strong um, conservation. And uh, what also happened during the last, I would say, 10, 15 years is that people realized that uh, a functional circadian clock in humans is extremely important for human health. So, for example, uh, people that work um, uh, rotating shifts, yeah, which are a lot in, in, in the Western world, at least, yeah, mm. that, that, uh, that work uh, in a night shift for uh, two weeks and then sh switch to another shift yeah. two weeks later, these, these people have, uh, of course, problem with the circadian clock because they're basically on a constant jet lag. They always have yeah. to reset their clock and we know now that this has uh, really fatal consequences for for human health yeah so um, that can lead to uh, obesity diabetes um, mental mental problems sleeping disorders mm. and in the worst case even cancer and there are strong links now for example to the increased numbers of uh, um, breast cancer in in um, hospital nurses that work rotating shifts yeah and the fact that they work rotating shifts. Mm. Yeah? So this, uh, people always wondered why is the rate of bre breast cancer so high in, in hospital nurses, and now we know why. Because oh, one, one of the reasons is that they're constantly pacing behind their circadian clock. Yeah? So, um, uh, Professor Ralph, what would you advise our listeners on, on, on the uh, circadian rhythms and what can damage us, our health? Uh, well, as I said, you, you, you should... I mean, people, and, and this, is, this is really important, you should listen to your, to your uh, endogenous clock and try to live as much as possible uh, uh, a life where you follow the normal natural cycle of, of light and dark. Yeah? So, uh, and, and for example, your meal times. Don't eat uh, excessive amounts of food uh, 
late at night when your body clock is not not ready to deal with it yeah your whole body physiology is not ready to deal with it it's very unhealthy yeah mm -hmm. so you should live even if it sounds boring yeah you should try to live a, a, a relatively um, regular life in terms of when you go to bed when you mm -hmm. wake up and when you eat and when you drink yeah. Yeah? yeah that so so live as close as possible with nature yeah and follow your follow your chronotype yeah um don't don't so and and with chronotype i mean that that uh, uh, people fall usually into uh, one of the two groups they're either owls or either, either larks so they have a have an easy time mm. of of getting up in the morning or they have a hard time of getting up in the morning, but therefore function better in the in the afternoon yeah. and in the evening. Yeah? yeah, this is there's nothing you can do about it. This is written into your clock genes basically. So your clock genes determine if you if you have a slightly fast running clock, or a slightly low running clock. If you have a slightly fast running clock, you're you're an, a, a lark. If you have a slightly slow running clock, mm. you're an owl. Yeah, and and there is nothing you can do about it, but. Um, you you should try to to uh, to organize your life around your chronotype if possible. Of course, mm -hmm. a lot of times it is not possible. If your work starts at five o'clock, you have to be there. Yeah, but mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the good things in the UK, for example, is that schools start not as early as here in Germany. So I can mm -hmm. tell from from my own children uh, that went to school first in England and then later in Germany, it was much better for them not to start school that early and to get up that early. Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, Professor Stanuski, that's that's all we have time for today. We mm -hmm. are coming. We are coming up to the eight nine o'clock news now. So unfortunately, we can't speak more. But it was lovely speaking with you. Uh, a great discussion, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Professor Ralph Staniewski, uh, who, like we mentioned earlier, is a professor at the University of Münster, Germany, where he continues his studies on the circadian clock. His uh, research focuses on how the circadian clock is synchronized to natural light, dark, and temperature cycles, and how clocks can maintain constant clock speeds. Um, and with that, we are uh, have now come to the end of the show. Thank you for for listening and for contributing. We hope you have a a wonderful day ahead and here is the nine o'clock news.